This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're checking in on the state of the medical marijuana industry in New York, and our guest is Jeremy Unruh, Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Pharmacan, a marijuana company operating in eight states, including a handful of medical marijuana dispensaries in New York, as well as a cultivation and processing operation. Welcome back to the show, Jeremy. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. It's our pleasure to have you again. So, what have the last two plus years been like in New York for your company following the legalization of marijuana with the 2021 passage of the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act? Has it been a demonstrably different landscape than pre-MRTA when we just had medical marijuana? Well, speaking from the point of view of one of the medical infrastructure operators, one of the medical, we call them registered organizations here in New York, Uh, I can tell you that not much has changed in the last two years, other than we've seen a decay of the number of medical patients that are in the program. Uh, We had a peak of about 150,000 patients in the state, maybe 2019 or 2020, uh, when the MRTA, the adult use law, was effectuated in roughly the end of March two years ago, we began to see an immediate drop off in the number of patients because it was so much easier for our medical patients to go down to the nearest illicit operation, selling products from out of state, untested, unlabeled, untaxed products from out of state than it was to maintain their credential to come into our medical cannabis dispensaries. And, and it's, it's a shame because even, even at its peak of 150,000 patients for the state of New York, I mean, compare that to Pennsylvania, a state with less than half the population of New York State, they have over 500,000 medical patients in their medical cannabis program. Florida, which is a state with a roughly similar similar population to New York, uh, has 750,000 patients in their medical program. And so it's really disappointing for the existing medical infrastructure set up over the last nearly decade to, to be responsive to the needs of medical patients and to help lay the groundwork for the rollout of this adult use program, it's really disappointing that the OCM and the state has neglected us and continues to ignore the resources that we can bring to bear to help ameliorate some of the issues that they have here, including 1,600 illicit commercial operations across the state, millions and millions and millions, if not billions of product made by these conditional cultivators sitting in their warehouses, unable to be sold because there are only, what, 10 or 11 retail dispensaries opened up after two years of the adult use program. It's gut roiling to us. Initially, with the medical marijuana system in New York, there was a prescribed list of conditions that doctors could reference when prescribing medical marijuana that has gone the way of the dodo. They've also changed the products that can be sort of sold for medical marijuana consumption, all with the idea of increasing engagement in the medical marijuana system. Has that just completely failed in terms of increasing access to medical marijuana? And if so, how come? Yeah, it, it has failed in terms of engaging patients to, um, to, to come to our medical dispensaries. And I think that these are not really material fixes in in a landscape where the illicit market is 
proliferated and in fact controls the marketplace in New York State right now. One of the things that they didn't do was to get rid of the 7% excise tax on medical marijuana products. There's no other prescription or over-the-counter medication in New York that's taxed. And no other state has any real material tax on its medical marijuana products, but the legislature did not see fit to advance a bill that would have done away with the tax on medical products that would hopefully make our products slightly more competitive with those that are available on the illicit market. And of course, there are almost no products available in the the regulated market because again, as I mentioned, there's only 10 or 11 retail locations open and, and several of them are concentrated in just a few square blocks in the city. Back in March, it was reported your company was considering layoffs in the very near future uh, if the state landscape didn't change dramatically. Were you able to uh, avoid layoffs? Are you still considering layoffs? Uh, Have they happened? What's the employment prospects of the, I think, roughly 300 people throughout the state that you employ? We have not yet laid anyone off because as a company, as a business operator, the very last thing we want to do is to draw back on our employment resources. Um, These are good, good paying full-time union jobs with benefits, with retirement, with health, with vision. And so we're proud of these jobs. And one of the reasons why we operate is to, is, is to provide these jobs. And so we have not yet laid anyone off because we're sort of waiting to see what's around the next bend of the river. Uh, May 1st was, was, was one of the benchmarks that we were trying to get to be- before making a decision to, to, to engage in layoffs. And by then, we knew that the next or the second round of, of draft regulations for adult use uh, cannabis operations was forthcoming on or about May 11th. And so we got to see those. And now it it's, it's sort of remains to be seen whether the OCM will actually effectuate those regulations and, and, and allow us to come into the market so that we can avoid these layoffs. I mean, we're putting them off and doing everything we can do to avoid laying anyone off. But it's, it's, it's just not looking good because the OCM continues to refuse to give registered organizations any clarity as to when they'll be able to engage in, in the, the regulated adult use market, notwithstanding the fact that we have a a string, a network of 38 retail dispensaries across the state that are ready, willing, and able to serve adult use consumers with either products made by the conditional cultivators or products made by other registered organizations or products we make ourselves. And there are certainly rules and and thoughts about which of those we should or shouldn't be providing. And, And that's fine. It's just the state is so caught up in its high-minded policymaking that they've forgotten to actually start the marketplace, to get the marketplace going. And they continue to, to view this as a zero-sum game where if they, if they stick their thumbs in the eyes of the registered organizations, they're creating victories for new or more nascent social equity operators when that's the furthest thing from the truth because we are ready, willing, and able to assist new dispensary operators with the provision of, of, of safe, tested, reliable, correctly packaged and labeled uh, uh, cannabis products. And similarly, we have dispensaries that are ready, willing, and able to sell the products of, of, of our new cultivators and our new processors. It's just, it's, it's, it's just crazy 
that the state continues to maintain this, this zero-sum game with the registered organizations. Well, you sort of queued up my next question, but before I get to that, let me reintroduce you for listeners who are just joining us. Uh, this is the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Jeremy Unruh, Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Pharmacan, a medical marijuana company in New York. So let's turn to the recreational space. And originally there was an expectation that medical marijuana companies would have to wait three years uh, after recreational sales begin elsewhere uh, to enter this marketplace. It it now looks, based on regulations that came out from uh, state cannabis regulators, that you might be able to enter after just one year, uh, which means the first shops could open at the end of 2023. Um, what does that change mean for a company like Pharmacan? Yeah, so I, I, I want that. I want to make sure that that I'm clear that th- that was a favorable change from the first round of draft regulations to the second round of draft regulations, reducing the the waiting period for our ability to operate vertically. So what that was, remember that 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 was our ability to operate vertically, meaning meaning produce our products and then sell those in our own dispensaries to adult use consumers. Um, there's still the opportunity for us to wholesale our products non-vertically, meaning meaning sell our products at wholesale to other retailers, other dispensaries that that is that you know we're still waiting on. But notwithstanding, even they even though they've they've shortened that that three-year timeline, it's still going to be roughly three years after the 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 legalization of adult use in in New York, right? So we're still we're still sort of stuck in this waiting period. Um, though we are, uh, you know, for us, it's about getting into the marketplace in in any form or fashion, whether that's not selling through our dispensaries to adult use consumers, but simply selling wholesale to other other companies' dispensaries or selling vertical. It, for us, it's about getting into the New York marketplace and showing, you know, our investors, the people that have funded the development of the medical cannabis program in New York State for the last decade that yes, that even though the statute that was passed more than two years ago says, yes, registered organizations are allowed to participate in the New York State market, actually fulfilling that mandate is is what's important to us. So I want to express favorable vibes to the OCM for shortening that timeline, but it's still been two years and counting. And so, you know, it's it's really hard for us to continue to invest uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars into building out this medical and hopefully adult use cannabis infrastructure um, without the ability to offset that by participating meaningfully in the market. Do you know right now where you'd like to co-locate your first recreational dispensary with a medical facility? We do. And would you like to share that with the Capital Press from listeners? Well, I, I don't want to. And here's why. It's not that I'm trying to keep a big secret. It's just that we still have a few other options to suss out and sort through over the next handful of months before that, that decision is made definitively. But it is likely to be um, what we consider to be our flagship store uh, in, in the boroughs. And after a quick break, we'll have more with Jeremy Unruh, Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Pharmacan, a marijuana company operating in eight states, including a handful of medical marijuana dispensaries in New York.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. For listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're continuing our conversation with Jeremy Unruh, Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Pharmacan, a marijuana company operating in eight states, including a handful of medical marijuana dispensaries in New York, which is hoping to get into the retail recreational marijuana space in the Empire State very soon. When you think about the retail spaces that your company could potentially operate, what are they going to look like? Are they going to be akin to the Apple Store type facilities that some envision for New York? Is it going to be something more scaled back? Are they going to be large in size, small in size? What do you have in mind? That's one of the wonderful things about the retail footprint in New York, not just for the registered organizations, but for all retail licensees. I don't know what restrictions the Office of Cannabis Management or the Dormitory Authority will place on its the conditional adult use dispensary operations that it stands up for some of the card licensees. Mm -hmm. Those may be somewhat generic or somewhat kind of cookie cutter, one being like the next being like the next. For us, however, we have a little bit more flexibility in what our retail footprint looks like. And so in our co-located dispensaries, and by co-located, I mean those are dispensaries that will serve both adult use consumers and medical patients. We will continue to prioritize our medical patients by ensuring that they have essentially express lanes and, and preferred parking and maybe even hours that are medical only so that we can ensure that our medical patients continue to, um, to receive the same service that we've been giving them over the last eight plus years, as well as ensuring that we have an appropriate array of of products that our medical patients tend to gravitate toward. But uh, what our retail locations look like is is going to largely be associated with the opportunity in that geographic space. So for example, if there are some dispensaries that avail themselves of sort of the big superstore or big center models where people will come, they hope people will come for miles around to see this big, beautiful, shiny dispensary with all these great things that they can see and feel and touch and, and learn about cannabis. Others, you know, in, in more urban downtown environments might be smaller, more kind of pop in, pop out shops built for throughput as opposed to for, for that great experience that a, that a bigger, more open dispensary might have. Some, some cannabis operators may gravitate towards the entertainment centers of the of the state, whether that's, you know, I'm, I'm making this up sort of the Coney Island or the, um, the Saratogas of, of the world. And others may be interested in what we call the exit one strategy, which is locating yourself sort of close to the border, which is what all of the Massachusetts operators that are nearest to Albany have done is they've all tried to attract those folks from across New York into Massachusetts uh, under the exit one strategy. And so you know, it, it, it really depends on the piece of real estate. It depends on the geographic location, how close you are to an urban center. That really drives what these dispensaries will look and feel like. But, but that said, we will prioritize our medical patients. And when it comes to product that was not grown by the, the medical marijuana companies 
themselves as part of their vertical integration model when it comes to stuff that you get from other farmers around New York. How will you place it in your stores or price it in your stores to ensure that it's competing uh, with your own homegrown products? So if you go to our dispensaries in other states, and we are not unique in this regard, many, many other dispensaries are the, are the same way. We're really a house of brands and not just our own brands. Much like a, a Rite Aid or a Walgreens or a CVS, you walk in, you can buy Crest or you can buy Colgate toothpaste. Our dispensaries will be similarly situated. Pricing is going to largely be dependent on the pricing that we get on the wholesale market. Um, you know, we have a very sophisticated team of merchandising and, and, and wholesale procurement and retail procurement operators. And they are the ones that really sort of determine, you know, what's the throughput of these products and do they need to be priced more competitively so that they don't sit on our shelves and what are other operators pricing at? And so you'll find, I think that those pricing mechanisms will look very much like pricing mechanisms look in other industries such as alcohol or or other just general consumer packaged goods products that you might find in a convenience store or a grocery store or a liquor store or any sort of outlet for those kinds of goods. The regulations that the State Office of Cannabis Management is considering with regards to medical marijuana companies entering the retail space also has a reimagining of the timeline for the licensing fee that you guys would pay. And Senator Jeremy Cooney, a Rochester Democrat, has another version of that, which would delay the full payment of that even longer than what state regulators are thinking about. What do you need to see in terms of the timeline for paying that $20 million licensing fee? Do you care if it's all up front? Do you care if it's when you hit $5 million of sales, $10 million of sales, $15 million of sales? How do you think about all that? And is there a point in which the timeline would actually impact uh, your entry into this market? Yeah, no, I think that's a very good question. You know, for us, the number 20 million, which is sort of the aggregate fee that is contemplated for this special one-time fee that, that, that the registered organizations would pay, uh, that would be used, you know, it's supposed to be used for, so, for social equity startup operations. And so the first round of, of regulations had us waiting for three years in order to retail, which is what the purpose of that license is. The purpose of that 68 dash, I believe it's a license is the one that allows us the privilege of vertical sales. And um, yet the fee is supposed to be used for social equity startup costs and obligations. So for them to delay that, that vertical opportunity for three years, yet still fund startup social equity opportunities, it, it just, there was a disconnect there. And so I think that's part of what drove the OCM to drag forward that operational or that vertical operational um, deadline from, from three years to, to just a few months now, because, because they need those social equity funds and those social equity funds are supposed to be devoted to uh, incubators and, and other startup costs. And then of course, in three years, they're not going to need startup funds. So we've sort of gotten our head around the notion that that's likely to be the, the, the amount of the fee. And so for us, again, having, you know, one of only a handful of registered organizations that has literally been driving this medical market for nearly the last decade, we have been investing 
upwards of a million dollars a month into, into New York State for those eight years. Uh, we have been operating at a significant loss in order to develop the, the medical dispensaries and to keep people on staff in, in light of these abysmal medical marijuana patient numbers that we've been under for the last several years. And so in order for us to begin to pay that fee, we desperately need to be in the marketplace. Like we can't pay that fee yet still wait for months and months and months to engage in adult use sales. It's just, it's just counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. And so we're open to the amount of that fee. We just need them to either dovetail the timing of, of the charging of, of that fee with our ability to operate vertically. So vertical dispensaries or allow us to operate as a, as a non-vertical wholesaler for a period of time so that we can sort of work that work. You know, we can generate a little bit of revenue to try to pay that fee uh, upon licensure to be vertical. So that was a mouthful, but in, in a nutshell, we are comfortable paying the fee, but we need to, we need to work it off. I mean, it's just that easy. Well, finally, what does the possibility of medical marijuana companies like yourself entering the retail space before the end of the year mean for the outstanding lawsuit to the uh, initial licensing process uh, that the state office of cannabis management has followed for the uh, retail dispensaries. Yeah, it's listen. All all that lawsuit is is attempting to do is to hold the OCM and the cannabis control board to the strictures of the MRTA. The MRTA says that all dispensary applications shall be issued at the same time, but instead they created this brand new cohort uh, of social equity licensees that didn't, that wasn't really described as one of the handful of, of, of cohorts of social equity licensee. And they gave those folks licensing opportunities that they didn't give to anybody else. And so that's wrong. And my sense is that if the state begins to follow some of the, some of the programming that's outlined in the MRTA, begins to set timelines for issuing these dispensary applications, begins to you know, make it clear how the registered organizations can get into the adult use space, begins to make clear a plan for ameliorating or addressing the illicit market, that those are, those are the things that are going to allow the coalition that's bringing that lawsuit to consider how forcefully they will be prosecuting that lawsuit. So, for example, if the draft regulations that lay out the timeline we're talking about, if they become uh, written in stone, could you foresee the coalition dropping the lawsuit? Well, that, that's, part, that's part of it. But remember, there are other members of the coalition than registered organizations. And some of those are folks who want to apply for retail dispensaries in New York. And there is a provision in there that is pretty clear that talks about how um, how how dispensary applications are to be released. And so I think that the state needs to do some thinking about how they're going to address that. You know, th there is a huge risk right now posed by this lawsuit, which is the viability and frankly constitutionality of, of this card program that they've created from whole cloth. And so, you know, pretty soon, you know, the rubber is going to meet the road and they're going to have to defend their creation of this program 
notwithstanding the fact that the MRTA doesn't really allow them to do that. And so uh, I think that as soon as they begin to address some of these outstanding issues, I think that that's, that's what will lead to the ability to have a conversation about the lawsuit going away. That's my sense. Well, we've been speaking with Jeremy Unruh. He is the Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Pharmacan. Jeremy, thank you so much for making the time again. I really appreciate it. David, it was a pleasure, uh, and, and I'm delighted to, to be on your show, and thank you for, for, for giving me your ear and, and the ear of your listeners. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.